The Glory Center would like to welcome you to this podcast. We hope that this teaching will encourage and minister to you. And now, the message. Let's get to the word here. And I am extremely excited about this. Um, we're going to pick up in the Apocalypse, Book of Revelation. And we're going to start in chapter 4. And what does the word apocalypse literally mean? To unveil, to reveal, yes. So we, we want to emphatically make sure we allow scripture to interpret scripture. And the book of Revelation declares from the very first chapter that there is a great blessing on anyone who hears and heeds the words of that prophecy, the, the apocalypse or the unveiling of Jesus. And... You know, as with all the scriptures, we, we always want to remember that we're reading someone else's mail, right? And there are certain scriptures that are uh, certain truths and principles and, and things that are, of course, eternally true and applicable. And you know what I mean? But, so you read the, something in, the, in Leviticus and you've got the peace offering and the sin offering and the day of atonement and all these things. You know, you wouldn't read Leviticus chapters, you know, 16 on the day of atonement and be like, okay, so you need to get this and then you need to get the animal and then you need a priest and then you, okay, okay, and then everybody has to, like you wouldn't read that and literally, directly, personally apply that. Hello. You wouldn't read the, you know, Next Sunday, Ken comes running into the church and says, Jordan, oh my gosh, we have to build an ark. Why is that, Ken? I was reading the book of Genesis, and God said a flood's coming. Like, so you wouldn't, you know, but there are truths there to be found, right? And so even in the New Testament, we're reading someone else's mail, even though certain truths are, uh, you extrapolate, and they're eternally true. And that's why... Um, You know, Paul said, rightly divide the word of truth. So there is a dividing of the word of truth on what's directly applicable. You know, it's called audience relevance. And so we have to have a strong sense of audience relevance. So even in the book of Revelation, John is uh, very specifically writing to encourage the seven churches. And of course, we went through all seven of the churches and looked at their specific situations and, and how the Lord was helping them during their time of the Great Tribulation, when they were under Jewish and Roman persecution. And, you know, I was talking to Ryan a few days ago, aren't you glad you don't have seven years of hell on earth to look forward to? That's incredibly good news, man. Hallelujah. That's awesome news. Well, Jordan, if God's not going to come back and murder a few billion people, what do we have to look forward to? I mean, that's basically the mentality some people have, you know. You know. Now, of course, there isn't a single verse in, anywhere in the Bible that says there's a seven-year Great Tribulation. There's a three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation, but uh, there's not a single scripture anywhere that says the first half of a hint of anything about a seven. Now, you, you say, well, Jordan, that's incredible. The Bible, the Bible doesn't say a word about it. No, but you got to remember, as Andrew Womack says, most people don't let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. You know? So most Christians don't let the Bible. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if there's not a single verse about a seven-year Great Tribulation. That's what I've been told, and that's what I believe now Begin in Revelation 4. 
And remember at the end of Revelation 3, Jesus says he stands at the door and he knocks, right? And then you get into Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to go through chapter 4, hopefully fairly quickly. And then chapter 5 and chapter 6, you know, some of the seven seals and the horsemen and get into some of those things. Now remember, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says the unveiling or the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ given to John to show him things which must soon take place. Not things 2,000 plus at least years in the future. Things which must soon and many times in the book of Revelation. He very clearly, plainly says these things will uh, soon take place. All right? Now, and I have it up here uh, behind me, correct? Yeah. All right. And I did say chapter 4, but you can say that. I'll just put this up here. The revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1 1, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon, somebody say soon, soon. take place. And he sent communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, testifying the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Why, John? For the time is near. So just in the introduction of the book, two different times, he says soon and near. And even in the last chapter, but there's multiple places in the book, but even in Revelation 22, he says the time is at hand. I am coming soon. I am coming quickly. All right? And so uh, we want to keep those things in mind. Why would you think about it? Why would John write a letter, this prophecy, this vision to these seven churches who were under severe extreme persecution from the Jews and the Romans, and some of whom were literally dying and, and being excommunicated from jobs and society and all these things for the gospel's sake. And then he says, oh, and uh, but have hope, have joy, because 2,000 plus years in the future, after you've already been killed, and after your situation's gone, uh, God's going to come help you. Well, thanks for the encouragement, John. Are you kidding me? This makes no sense at all. Am I getting anywhere? <laughs> now, so, and so, so he goes through, you know, the seven churches there. Chapter 4, check this out. Uh, so at the end of chapter 3, he says, I, I stand at the door, but at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, After these things I look, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And sometimes in our charismatic circles, we talk about an open heaven. You know, you hear stuff. And of course, you know, as believers, you think about it. You know, we have a hope that, you know, one day I'll step out of this body and I'll go to heaven. But God's hope was that he could die and come live in us. So we're kind of like heaven to God, if you will. You know what I'm saying? And so that was the Lord's hope that for us, you know, Christ in you. The hope of glory. And so we we we're the open heaven. And you know, it's Jesus, not misunderstanding, but Christ in us is so we live. There there is no we have to, you know, bind up the uh whatever's of this town and if we pray enough and if we bombard God enough and we do all these things and then if we pull down and you know, we can do these things because whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. And whatever you loose into the earth is already loosed in heaven in terms of, you understand what I'm saying? And so 
we, we have these things. And so any of the faith things that we apply in our lives, such as prayer, praying in the spirit, fasting, reading, studying, meditating, confessing the word, prayers of agreement, uh, church and, and ministry and being edified, and any of these things that we do, these faith steps, are not really getting, I don't think so much getting you know God to do things, but it's more about us aligning ourselves with what God's already done. Right? And so that's faith. Faith is believing something that is true. Amen. It's not trying to bend God's arm to do something. Right? Yeah. And so we want, to, we want to keep a firm grip on that. Grace is what God has done for us and provided for us. Faith is our receiving and stepping into and aligning with what he's done and provided. Fair enough? Hallelujah. So we have open heaven. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Now, moving on here. He says, uh, a door standing open in heaven, and the first uh, voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place. So we see from the onset here that John is being invited to see things from heaven's perspective. And of course, we want heaven's perspective on things, don't we? And that's, that's what the Ephesians chapter 1 prayer is all about. He says, Pray so that you can receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that your eyes and the eyes of your heart would be enlightened and open. And uh, Ephesians 1, what is it, 17 through the end of the chapter. Um, very powerful prayer. Uh, but it's so we can see things from the Lord's perspective, right? And so we see here from the apocalypse, there is a heavenly perspective on the things that uh, are happening. And, you know, if heaven has an opinion and a perspective on something, and then if we or anyone else has an, a different opinion, you know, well, guess who's right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Jesus is right. And so we want to align with heaven's perspective on these things. Hallelujah. He says, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. Notice this. And there was a rainbow around the throne, emerald in appearance. Now, obviously, you know, when we see this rainbow, you know, what do you naturally think of? I, I heard three. You probably all said the same thing. Noah, right? And God's promise, God's covenant, his covenant of... Oh, no? Let's go. <laughs> yes, Lord. Exactly. Yes. Is it Skittles that says, taste the rainbow? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> London, by the way, I took London to watch um, The Incredibles Part 2, which just came out. And then the next day or the day after, we had to go again. So Linda took him. And uh, so he's obsessed with that right now. But when I took him, if mommy takes him, this doesn't really happen, but if I take him, and usually I think Linda hooks him up pretty good too, he gets two little snacks. I don't fill him with a bunch of junk, because sugar is absolute poison for your body. But I let him, you know, so I give him uh, some Skittles. He wanted Skittles. But it's so cute because he calls it Skittles. You know, Skittles. <laughs> Daddy, can I have some Skittles? <laughs> so I gave him some Skittles. Hallelujah. So we, we see uh, from the onset here, it's very interesting. 
that we see the rainbow around the throne, which speaks of God's promise and his covenant of peace. All right? That's very important to keep in mind. And, 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 and think about this. When you read scripture, God, you know, if you just open, you know, your Bible, you have Old Testament, New Testament. But it's not quite that, you know what I mean? It's, it's not quite that. There's Because there's different covenants within what's divided as the Old and the New Testament, right? And so there are five major covenants between God and man in the scriptures, right? And of course, God's, and God's first covenant that he made was with Noah, and then with Abram, Abram slash Abraham, then with Moses, then with David, and then with Jesus. And so we have to keep these covenants in mind because you see what seems like God functioning differently with people uh, in somewhat different ways at different times because uh, there are different covenants, valid covenants in effect. So it's just good to keep that in mind sometimes. Nonetheless, now notice this verse 4. Uh, it says, And around the throne were the 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, uh, golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of uh, lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were uh, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, verse 6 says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, the, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne, and the four living, uh, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Now, turn with me, hold your spot there unless you're using a phone. But turn with me very quickly to Ezekiel chapter 1. And I do apologize. Uh, I don't think I have that up here. Ezekiel chapter 1. And we want to keep in mind the book of Revelation can and really does make sense, right? When we understand where the imagery and the language comes from. And of course, quite naturally, and hopefully more and more apparently, we see that it comes from the Old Testament scriptures, right? And we're going to get in into some, you know, more of these things where we see the seals and where you see the marks on people's heads and all these things. All of that's Old Testament stuff. That's not futuristic um, cyber world stuff. All right, that's uh, Old Testament stuff, and naturally and rightly so. You know, we want to always uh, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Nonetheless, Ezekiel chapter one, uh, starting in verse twenty-six. says, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. Like, now what's your, what's your say next? 
Ezekiel 126. There was an expanse over their head, something resembling a drawn line, something in appearance. Sapphire. You just say sapphire, what you say? Before that. Oh, here, okay, mine says, okay, sapphire in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne was a figure with the appearance of a man. So, of course, in Revelation 4, 6, we start seeing the open heaven, and John's invited to see from a heavenly perspective and what's front and center from the beginning, the throne, God's throne. God is, is, God is king, amen? amen? So he says here, uh, then I noticed, verse 27, from the appearance of his loins and upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance. There was a radiance around him. Now notice this. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So this is exactly what we see here in Revelation 4. The throne... And then what was there? The pot of gold. <laughs> the rainbow, right? Same thing, all right, where John's getting his imagery from. As the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. Now, that's Revelation 1. Whenever John turns around and sees the Lord, he said, I fell over as one dead. Amen? And so, obviously, he's getting this language here from uh, the Old Testament scriptures. Now, you get into the, the 24 elders, and, you know, there's basically just speculation about, does that somehow represent 12 tribes, 12 apostles, Old and New Covenant? Your guess is as good as mine, so... Uh, verse 7. He says, and then he gets into the creatures. The first creature was like a lion, the second a calf, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. And I'm trying to get through chapter 4 a little quickly here, as you can probably tell. But notice this, verse 8. He says, the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whew, I love that. Jesus is forever the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. You can look back over your whole life and see. And I, you know, I look back over my life and the times I should have died, should have been killed, should have whatever. And I think I'll be, and of course, there's times we probably don't know, you know, that we just missed whatever, you know. And uh, he was. He was there with us, upholding us. And then even in our current situations, we, we are solidified, not in the feeling, but in the knowledge of the truth that he is. Here and now, he is. He is faithful. He is faithful to me. And Paul even said so radically in one place that even if we abide unfaithful, he remains faithful. Hallelujah. He cannot deny himself. So God is ever faithful, and thank God he is the one who is to come. And so whatever our future holds, whatever we run into in the future, he is the one to come. He's there with us. Amen? Amen. 
And that's a beautiful, beautiful reality. Now, uh, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. I love this next part here. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So all from this chapter, we see the preeminence of King Jesus. We see the preeminence of his promise, his covenant of peace towards his faithful people. Amen? And so we see that uh, Jesus, well, just think about it like the Gospel of Luke uh, in chapter 6. Jesus said, whoever builds their house, their life, on his sayings, the new covenant realities, he said, uh, the devil and the big bad wolf and the winds of life will huff and puff, but your house will stand. Hallelujah. And so from the very beginning here, we see uh, God, his preeminence in perspective. And um, let's jump into chapter 5 here, though. I think we'll get into some, uh, some uh, just incredible things here. And it's possible that I will have that I have enough time to finish half of what I want to, which is pretty good compared to usual. Yeah, you know. Now, check this out. Revelation chapter 5. You drink the water here. Nothing worse than a dry creature. Here we go. It says, verse 1, it said, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written, written inside and on the back, and that it was sealed up with seven seals. Now, once again, I want to look at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 2. And we want, to, we want to realize these things once again. And we're going to continually, continually, even though the marks on the head and the new heaven and the new earth and all of these things, all of this stuff is Old Testament scripture, right? And so we have to understand as, and another good thing to keep in mind uh, as we read through this is that Think about the exodus for the children of Israel. And there's a parallel for the 40-year transition. Because, you know, they left Egypt, but there wasn't quite, they weren't in the promised land yet. So they're, they're out of Egypt, but they're not quite in the promised land yet. So they're in that in-between state. Even in America, you know, in presidential elections, someone receives, you know, uh, you know, they're nominated for their party, and then whoever, you know, wins the election. But there's still a little bit of time before they actually receive their reins and step into office. You understand that? So there's still that transition season. And, and there's different aspects where, um, uh, think about David, First Samuel 16. God has uh, Samuel to go and anoint David. 
Well, he's anointed to be king that day. But how long is it until he becomes king? 40 years. So there was a 40-year transition period from being anointed as king till he actually steps into that office. Children of Israel, they're out, but there's a 40-year journey into the full freedom that God had provided for them. In the New Testament, Jesus crucified, resurrected, initiates the new covenant system in the year 30 AD, but there was a 40-year transition period while the old covenant system was still on the scene. Now, God wasn't honoring the old covenant system anymore, but it was still present, all right? And so they had the same, there's that 40-year exodus motif here in the book of Revelation, and that's what the book of Revelation is about, exiting out of the old covenant surrounding and system into a full uh, Moses-less new covenant world, okay? Now, Ezekiel 2, you're probably there. I guess I need to get there, huh? Ezekiel chapter 2, and then uh, verse 8. Now notice this. He says, Now you, son of man, pardon me, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Now notice this. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Now we're not there yet, but most I'm sure you all know that you see this happening in the book of Revelation uh, as well. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving to you. Then I looked and behold, what was uh, a hand was extended to me with a scroll in it. He spread it out before me. It was written on the front and back and on it were lamentations and mournings and woes. So he hands him the scroll and says, eat. Now, of course, we're going to see that happen with John here in Revelation. And you say, where does that come from? That's bizarre. That's wild. Yes, it is. It's from the Old Testament scriptures. So he hands him the scroll. And he says it's written on the front and the back. And written on it were lamentations and mournings and woes. What is the book of Revelation? What do we see happening once the seals are open? We see these book of Deuteronomy and book of Leviticus, covenant curses and judgments coming on the people who rejected their Messiah. And that's exactly what we see playing out here. Okay? Now, well, let's see. As a matter of fact, so we don't have to do it later, just flip over to Ezekiel chapter 3 and you look at uh, the first few verses here. He says, Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and Ezekiel 3, verse 1, 2, 3, and 1, 2, 3. He says, I opened my mouth, he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll that I'm giving to you. I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. You recognize this from Revelation, right? Okay. And if not, of course you will. So we see exactly where this is coming from, Ezekiel. Ezekiel probably has the, most, the strongest parallels to the book of Revelation than any other book. I know Daniel has a lot, but I, I would have to say Ezekiel probably has more you know, plagiarism 
you know, or, or parallels or whatever you want to call it there. So, all right, back to Revelation 5. Check this out. Verse 2, he said, I saw a, uh, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Next verse. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book and look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. Next verse. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Hallelujah. I absolutely love that. There's not a single prayer that gets cast God's way that he misses. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I missed one. You know, no. Not at all, man. Now, again, let's notice a few things here, though. John is weeping because no one is found worthy. And then he says, stop weeping. Verse 5, he says, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Now, when you see Jesus mentioned as a lion, of course, that means he's the king, right? We understand that. He's king. And I think it speaks to his overcoming power, all right? Now, notice here also the root of David. I've not thought on this in a little while, but I throw it out there pretty often, fairly often. Um, Jesus is the root of David, or sometimes in the Gospels, he's called the son of David. And that always goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made a covenantal promise. And this was God's covenant with David. So the Davidic covenant is when God promised him through covenant, that he would have a seed who would sit on a throne of an everlasting kingdom. So in the Gospels, anytime someone said, you know, Jesus, you son of David, have mercy on me. They were literally saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the promised son and seed of David. You're the root of David, the one who has an everlasting throne in an everlasting kingdom. And so that's why you see it, even in Revelation 22, Jesus refers to himself as the root and the offspring of David. That's a very important uh, messianic pro uh, promise and description, all right? And so whenever you see Jesus connected with David, uh, many places in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Psalms, you see many different references to the seed of David uh, having a kingdom and a throne. It's, it's a messianic promise about Jesus. Now, from the tribe of Judah, uh, to overcome the seven seals. Now, let me say this very quickly. Uh, I'm not going to take the time to turn there. I lied. All right, very quickly. Hold your spot there. Let me show you something very important from the book of Leviticus. All right? A fulfillment from a covenant promise 
in the book of Leviticus, you see happening in the book of Revelation. Very quickly, Leviticus 26. And having an understanding of a fulfilled eschatology will start connecting so many dots. See, now when you read John in the book of Revelation and John is eating scrolls and, you know, tastes honey, but it's bitter. Oh, that's crazy, man. Where in the world is, oh, that's the book of Ezekiel. And then you go over here and people are getting marks on their heads. And then, oh, that's the book of Ezekiel. And so this stuff that doesn't make any sense does make sense. But we've not known some of these, we've not connected some of these dots. But then you start reading stuff like in Deuteronomy when God gives the covenant promises, and then the covenant curses, and then they say amen, which is a very strong covenant word, which means so be it unto me. And then you see all the covenant curses fulfilled from the destruction of Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD. You see so many of these promises fulfilled. Uh, more on that later, though. Leviticus 26. And let's start here. Check this out. Look at verse 18. So it's very interesting. The Lord says, If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you. Uh, Leviticus 26, 18. I will punish you, notice this, seven times. Seven times more for your sins. Look at verse 21. Then if you act with hostility against me and are un unwilling to obey me, I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. Verse 24, if you act, uh, then I will act with hostility against you, and I will strike you seven times for your sins. And then one more, verse 28. He says, if you don't obey me, then I will uh, act with wrathful hostility against you, and I will punish you seven times for your sins. So four times. In this covenant declaration, earlier in the chapter, the Lord mentions this, this is covenant. And if you break this covenant that we this, we have together. And then four times, notice he mentions this sevenfold judgment for sin. All right? And then when you're in the book of Revelation, what do you have? Seven seals. Seven thunders. Seven bowls. You start seeing where this stuff comes from. All right? Uh, seven trumpets. So in the book of Revelation, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, seven thunders, and the seven bowls, all of which release covenantal curses on unfaithful Old Covenant Israel. Where's that from? Leviticus 26. Sevenfold curses for not accepting Messiah and breaking the covenant. Does that make sense? So this stuff's not pulled out of thin air. It's from the covenant that God established with Moses and the people of Israel. All right, now, back to Revelation 5 here. And it's very interesting, and we just read the scriptures here. And again, I want you to keep in mind this 40-year uh, Exodus motif. We keep this in mind here. It's very interesting that when God delivered the children of Israel, there was required the blood of the Lamb. Right? You know, over the doorpost. Well, in the New Covenant, Exodus, out of the Old Covenant system of bondage, which Paul literally in Galatians 4 called the Old Covenant a system of bondage, um, a yoke of slavery, he called it different things in Galatians. But um, anyways, 
in the new covenant, Exodus, there was also the death and blood of a lamb. Of course, the lamb, Jesus. Can you see that same parallel? All right, now, it says, you know, when, of course, we read these here in the prayers of the saints. Now, notice this. This is incredible. Verse 9, and I'm doing pretty good on time. This is incredible. I don't know. Man. God, God is in the building, and Jordan's accomplishing time-wise what he's hoping to. Yeah, you know. Yeah, probably. So verse 9, he says, And then they sing a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Oh, incredible, isn't it? And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, very interesting here, they sang a new song, right? Um, and I'm not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy chapters 31, 32, 33, you get what's called the Song of Moses, all right? And the children of Israel received what was then a new song, the Song of Moses, that was given to them as a reminder of the covenant, what the blessings for obedience, the curses for disobedience to their covenant, and then uh, that's given to them before they cross into the promised land. Same thing here. They are given a new song. This song, though, is not about their, for the, for the new covenant people of God. Our song is not about our obedience or disobedience. Our song, our hope, our joy, our faith, our anchor is always around his obedience. Amen? Amen. That's incredible. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5 talks about the disobedience of one. Adam made many unrighteous, but the obedience of one, Jesus, made many righteous. Amen. And then you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and he tells us there that any high thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God, these strongholds, these, uh, these bondages in the mind, he said you take these cap thoughts captive by bringing them, subjecting them to the obedience of Christ. Not our obedience, not obedience to Christ, obedience of Christ. Because that's our victory. Thank God for that, amen. Thank God it's not up to our obedience to, you understand what I'm saying? And the, Mo the Mosaic Covenant was contingent upon their obedience or, you know, and their disobedience. But for us, the New Covenant, the covenant we're in, it's, it's the New Covenant is between God the Father and God the Son. And so Jesus, as a God, as a man, God-man, represents all of humanity. So we can't break the covenant because it's not our covenant to keep or to break. All the, the church has broken covenant with God. The church never had a covenant with God. Only Jesus has a covenant with God the Father. The, the God-man, the Son, has a covenant with God the Father. Right? And, and whosoever will is invited into their covenant with one another. And the book of Galatians talks about this, and Hebrews uh, talks about this in Galatians 4 and Hebrews 6. both talk about this incredible new covenant between the Father and the Son. Whew, that's a good deal, man. I don't have to keep the covenant, and I can't break the covenant. It's not my covenant. But I get to experience the blessings of their covenant faithfulness towards one another. Ah, see, Jesus, uh, I'm getting off track there. But again, Jesus asked the firstborn. The blessing comes on the firstborn. Well, Jesus is the firstborn of many brethren. 
So Romans 8 says we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Amen. So we get to partake of his blessings because of his perfect faithfulness to the Father. As Jesus is, so are we in this world. Amen. Amen. Woo! Hallelujah. That's good stuff, man. Verse 10, he says, you've made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. Now, don't turn there, but in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, this is incredible. God offered for the entire nation of Israel to come up to him on Mount Sinai because he, he told Moses, I'm going to make the whole nation a kingdom. But they literally refused God's offer and said, no, Moses, you go alone and then you just come back and tell us what he wants us to do. And, and even today, that's, that's the plague of religious self-righteousness and legalism. Just tell, me what I, just tell me what to do. Just give me the rules to keep. You know, and who needs a relationship with God when I can just keep the rules? And it's self-righteous. And that's what they said. They said, no, we're not going to go up there and get close to God. Moses, you go. Just come back and tell us the rules. You know, and that's, that's legalism 101, man. You know, that's Adam and Eve syndrome. Already like God, but they don't believe it. They, they yield to the lie and say, no, I can do something and become more like God. Anyways, uh, but in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, God makes this covenantal. Do you understand? God never wanted Israel to have a Levitical priesthood. That was not his plan. He offered the whole nation to be a priest, a kingdom of priests unto him. But they refused and declined his offer. Right? And he met them where they were, and he worked in that system. Just like God never wanted them to have a king. You understand this, First Samuel? Mm -hmm. He right. said, hey, I never wanted you to have a king. He wanted to be their king, and they were a kingdom of priests for the living God in the earth. That was his plan. But they rejected that, so he made one priesthood within, you know, uh, the people of Israel. He made one from Aaron, uh, priesthood, and then he let them have a king. You know, so, um, anyways, in the new covenant, Jesus did this thing the right way because he's our covenant representative because it's his covenant as a man with the Father. And so he has made us a kingdom and priest. So the kingdom of God has come, and we are all priests unto God. Hallelujah. And he says, and they will reign upon the earth. And that word earth there is the word gain, which of course means the land of Israel. But more on that in just a moment. Keep reading here. Hallelujah. It says, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands and uh, a thousand. Now notice this, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, all the sea, all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Last verse. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. I, I've touched on this here and there. Amen. We say amen in church, and that's good. You know, it's not, you know. Uh, but we, it's good to understand that it was, in, like in Deuteronomy 28, the great covenant and uh, blessings and curses chapter, God reads all the blessings, verses 1 through 14, they, they, all the blessings are given, and they never say amen. 
But he goes through the whole rest of the chapter, and when he finishes giving the curses, if they don't keep their end of the agreement, all the people of Israel said together, Amen unto Yahweh. And Amen literally means, so be it unto me. And it's a very strong covenant word. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God in him, they are yes, and they are amen unto the glory of God, right? And so notice here that they say amen, and the elders fell down. Now, I'm gonna, I don't have this up here, I apologize. Very quickly, I want you to notice this. All, all these scriptures here about blessing and honor and dominion and power unto the Lamb, a throne and a kingdom forever and ever. I want you to notice this, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 9. Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. I, and I, oh, I still your pages. I'll let you get there. says Daniel 7 starting in verse 9 he said I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat his vesture was white like white snow the hair of his head like pure wool his throne was ablaze with flames its wheels were a burning fire and a river was flowing and coming out from before him. a river of fire was flowing out and coming out from before him thousands upon thousands were attending myriads upon myriads well we just read that didn't we Myriad, you know we just read that in Revelation, right? Come on. What's that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, standing before him, the court sat, the books were open. He says, then I kept looking because of the sound of the bulls forged, the horn was speaking, we're on this later, the beast, the rest of the beast, the dominion was taken away. Verses 13 and 14, love these scriptures. He said, I kept looking at the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Of course, that's exactly all you see, all these myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, glory, strength, honor, people from every tribe, nation, language. We just read all that in Revelation. Of course, this is where he got all this from, in Daniel chapter 7. And of course, it's worth uh, reiterating that the kingdom of God, is, now this is very important, the kingdom of God is a kingdom which will not be destroyed. All right? And there's you, you, there's constant reference and mention of the throne and the king and the kingdom of God all throughout the book of Revelation. We want to understand that the kingdom came with the king. Does that make sense? So that's what kingdom means. It's from king's domain. Kingdom, right? And so the kingdom came in its fullest expression with the king, all right? This is this is dispens, this is why dispensationalism has so messed people up on some of these things 
is because dispensationalism literally teaches, because of its futuristic perspective, that Jesus is not king of kings and lord of lords yet, because supposedly the kingdom of God has not come yet. Well, that's absurd for many reasons, but the kingdom, long story short, at the moment, did come with King Jesus. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached very clearly that Jesus, as the son of David, had at that moment initiated the kingdom of God and sat on his Davidic throne. All right? I know that's a lot, and more on that later, but let's, let's understand there is, we're not under a so-called church age. There is no church age. There's no such thing as that. We're in the eternal new covenant. There's really not even an age of grace, and then later on God gets ticked off and comes back and lets people have it. It's not a church age or an age of grace. It's the eternal new covenant. And it is a covenant of grace towards us, but it's not a temporary age or dispensation, so-called of grace. God doesn't work through so-called dispensations. He works through covenants. All right? So we're, Hebrews 13 very clearly says we are in the eternal or everlasting new covenant. So it's not going to change. There's not some day where God's going to flip a coin and say, time's up. Time to go back and slaughter a few billion folks. There's no such thing as that. That doesn't mean there's not hard times in life. Of course, there's struggles in life. And it doesn't mean everything's peachy and perfect, you know. Uh, but it does mean that we are on the side of the king who wins. And we cannot lose for winning. Because worst case scenario, we step out of this body and instantly experience more glory than our little pea brains can fathom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo! Amen? Amen. Ah, that's good stuff. <clears throat> Next chapter, and this is where we'll wrap it up here. Thank you, Jesus. Boy, I'm preaching myself. I'm excited now. <laughs> and I don't know how much of this we'll get to here. Just a few moments at least, though. Let me show you something here. Revelation chapter 6. We can at least get through uh, a couple of things concerning the horsemen here. Verse 1. Then I saw the Lamb, when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four uh, creatures, living creatures, saying, as with the voice of thunder, Come. He said, I look and behold, a white horse. And he who had uh, uh, sat on it had a bow. Now this is very important. Because in the book of Revelation, you see some of these things. Like uh, marks on heads. And then people pull that out into a modern context and say it might be a, a, a chip. Or it might be a, a, like an invisible uh, barcode or something on your head. I mean, who knows all this stuff. But when we understand these, think about uh, Cain and Abel, man. God put a mark on Cain. You know God put a mark on Cain, right? Because he was afraid of, you know, since he killed somebody, they didn't want to take him out. And God put a mark on him. So this, you see, and then uh, later in Ezekiel, you know, you see marks. God's marking people. Hey, we're marked by God. Hallelujah. We've been sealed with the Spirit of God forever. And so, again, we want to interpret these things in Scripture. So when it says he, he who sat on it had a bow, well, that Unless you live in the Amazon, most modern warfare is not fought with a bow. So we want to understand this would have been a time when such weapons were available. 
It does well, you know, it, they were, it means bazookas, and John didn't know how to describe a bazooka. No, it doesn't say that. It said he had a ball. <laughs> Maybe it just means a ball. Just a possibility. Now, he said, I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And by the way, I'll show you where this, these horsemen, I'll show you where this comes from in the Old Testament in just a second. All right, he went out conquering and to conquer. He broke the second seal, second living creature said, come. Verse four, another, a red horse went out and to him who sat on it, uh, was given to take keys from the earth. Of course, the word earth there is the word being in the Greek, G-E, I think the land of Israel, that men would uh, slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. He broke the third seal, living creature saying, come, I looked and behold a black horse uh, he had on a pair of scales in his hand. I heard something like the voice in the center of the four living creatures say, a quart of bar barley, a quart of uh, wheat for denarius, and three quarts of barley for denarius. Do not damage the oil of the wine. And when the lamb broke forth seal, I heard the voice of the living creature saying, Come. I look, and behold, an ashen horse, and I'm sure some of your translations maybe say, what, devil, or, yeah, verse 8. And he who sat on it, his name was Death. And Hades was following him. But let me say this, by the way. You understand, and let me, the word hell was not invented until I think the seventh century or so. I may be wrong about that. Uh, it's exactly the time frame. It could have even been later. Uh, it may have been quite a bit later. I can't remember offhand. But uh, properly speaking, like if you go home today and you look up the word hell in the King James, it'll be in there. What is it, 56 times or something like that? But if you look it up in the NASB, it'll be in there like 14 times. If you look it up in the NIV, it'll be in there like, I don't know, eight times. But if you, then if you look it up, if you've ever heard of the Young's literal translation, it's in there zero times. Because technically, properly speaking, the word hell is not ever used in Scripture. All right? There was no word for hell. And it, the, actually, the word hell came from an old word that meant like to cover or to conceal. And I, I've uh, heard, like they used to, uh, they would, H-E-L, they would hell potatoes during the winter. They, they would cover their ground. And I've heard of different ways of uh, all the etymology and all that type of stuff. So that's why here in some of your translations it says hell, but it says Hades. And that would be a, a better translation. Te just te technicality thing for you there, just understand that. Uh, the Jews believed in one afterlife place called Sheol. Right? Hades is the Greek contemporary. You understand what I'm saying? In Hebrew, it would have been Sheol or Sheol, but in Greek, it was Hades or Hades. And it was the one afterlife holding tank for all people. That was their belief, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. All right? um, of course, we'll get into more about some of those things later. But nonetheless, death and Hades was following him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the land. It's earth, but it's Israel. Okay. Uh, authority was given over them, uh, a fourth of the land of Israel, to kill with sword and famine and pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. And very quickly here. Oh, so much more. I want to get it. My time did finally get me. Very quickly here. Uh, turn to Zechariah. I want to show you this. Book of Zechariah, chapter 6. 
I know this is like a ton of information, but I hope it's, you know, beneficial, to say the least. That would have been a good time to say amen. amen. Even if you don't mean it, just come and preach your out, would you? Throw me a ball. Pot of gold. Pot of gold. Throw me a pot of gold, man. Book of Zechariah, chapter 6. Starting in verse 1. It says, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were bronze mountains. With the first chariot, there were red horses. The second chariot, there were black horses. Third chariot, white horses. And I'm so sorry I don't have this up here. Please forgive me, but... Uh, nonetheless, with the third chariot, white horses, and with fourth chariot, it depends on your translation. Uh, let me try the King James on this one. Actually, on fourth chariot, see how it puts it. Uh, yeah, different. This is King James says in the fourth chariot, grizzled and bay horses and strong. Uh, dappled. dappled, yeah, dappled is NASD and perhaps some of the others. So anyways, but this right here, very clearly, you see your four horses. Now notice the horsemen. Now notice, um, he said, uh, then I uh, spoke and said to the angel, verse 4, who was with, uh, speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel replied to me and said, these are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. Uh, with one of which the black horses are going forth to the north country, the white ones after them, while the dappled horses go to the south country. Verse 7, when the strong ones went out, they were eager to patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Verse 8, then he cried out and spoke to me, saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. Now, first closing, back to the book of Revelation. So very clearly here, you got your four horsemen in Revelation. Where did he get this from? The messenger, the you now communicating with the angel, let me show him these four horsemen and their colors. Literally see the exact same thing here in Zechariah as you see in Revelation. So we don't have to, you know, this isn't some bizarre futuristic thing. This is, I mean, what, what were the Romans traveling? Horses, chariots, right? When they came in and slaughtered uh, the Jews, over a million Jews. The low estimate is one point, according to Josephus, during the Roman invasion from three and a half years, 66 to 70 AD, during the invasion and destruction of the Jewish people, the low estimate, which according to Josephus, who was an eyewitness, was 1.1. Some 1.1 million Jews were killed, starvation, they were killed for sport. The Romans would, uh, we will get more into some of the details later, you know, the woman who was found eating her own child, which you see as a prophecy in the Old Testament, staggering the accuracy of the things that happened, but uh, all the stuff, oh, it's just incredible. Uh, let me move on here, though. Notice again, Revelation 6, and then it gets to the first horse. The white bow was given to him to go forth and to conquer. Of course, I believe this speaks of Rome, which at the time was the kingdom of the known civilized world. And even if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream and then Daniel 
And he won't tell anybody what the dream is because he knows he'll just make something up. But then Daniel showing who the real and living God is. He has the dream about the statue and then it's the four kingdoms. All right. And then the kingdoms are uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom, which attacked and destroyed Jerusalem at that time. All right. And that's why Daniel was in exile at that time. He was one of the captives, you know, taken. So, um, and then the second kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire. The third Persian, what? Persian? Persian? I don't know what that. No. The third Persian. The third kingdom uh, was Greece, which would have been Alexander the Great. And then the fourth kingdom was Rome, which was the Roman. There is no again. There's no such thing anywhere in the Bible about a revised Roman Empire. There's no such thing as that. And everybody was all jacked up about the European Union whenever it had less than 10 countries. And that was the newest type. See, it's always some new, every day it's a new headline. It's, I don't know why we try to get our theology and our eschatology from the, the daily news headlines. But nonetheless, uh, of course, now there's over 20, 30, I don't even know how many are in it lately, you know, the, the European Union. So that blew that out of water. But there was a Roman kingdom at the time Jesus was on the earth. All right? And so, um, the first is the white going to conquer. That was the Roman kingdom who at that time conquered the non-civilized world. Broke the second seal, I heard him come saying, another, a red horse was granted to him to take peace from the earth. That men would slay one another and a great sword was given to him. And this speaks specifically, the first one is Rome as the conquering kingdom. The second one speaks very specifically of how the Romans came in and overpowered, overtook, killed, slaughtered through various means uh, the Jews. When Remember in, in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus told his disciples, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. And we know historically that they came a couple of times, uh, three times to be exact, but when they did, they left. But then the fourth time, they came and they stayed and they slaughtered. All right? And, and we know how uh, some of the horrific ways that the Jewish people were killed. And they were killing each other. Uh, as There was lots of people claiming to be the, the... There was great messianic fervor during this time, by the way. And that's why Jesus warned his disciples. Many will say, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Follow me. And then they would get... Uh, some of them had even thousands of followers. And they would say, you know, Yahweh has... He's going to use me. I'm the Messiah, and we're going to defeat these Romans. And they would go, and they'd get slaughtered. And there's many historical accounts. We know the names of the, the, the false messiahs, and all. You know many of the stories that happened, how they were killed, when they were killed. Uh, so we know all these things happen. But we see this here: absolute death, decay, destruction, slaughter. This red horse, as the Romans, red speaks of blood. This red slaughter. All right, and then. He says, the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come, I looked at black horse. He had the scales and then uh, the food for the prices. I believe this speaks of the famine, the severe famine uh, that they were under at that time because uh, we know they were starving to death. Uh, the Romans, uh, second closing here, the Romans would confiscate all the food, destroy all the food. Some of the Jews destroyed their own food. Some of the Jews raided the temple where there was food stored. You know, in Malachi, God said, bring tithes and offerings into the storehouse. So you have abundant blessing. Well, there was a literal storehouse where they kept because some of their grain offerings and wine and all the, you know, the meat offerings and the stuff they had that was kept and stored there. Uh, one guy uh, named John of Giscala, G-I-S-C-H-A-L-A. Don't worry about that. I'm just telling you this for, just forget his name. It points out of John uh, of Giscala. 
where Giscala came in, overtook the temple, killed the priests that were in the temple, and then took all the food that would have lasted throughout the when the Romans were in there. If they could have kept it secret, they would have had enough food to survive. They took it and they burned and destroyed all of their own supply of food. So to say, I'm going to prove to you that God's going to use me as the deliverer, burn all the food, and then God will have to save us. Well, they all got killed too. You know, so it was a nasty situation. Uh, then lastly, uh, before the sale, I heard the voice of living creature saying, come. He says, I looked and behold, an ashen horse who sat on it had the name Death. And this speaks of the utter, absolute death, desolation, destruction of the Jewish people and of the old covenant system as a whole that happened during this three and a half years, which uh, more on three and a half years later. But anyways, uh, it says authority was given to him over a fourth of the land, the, the land of Israel, uh, to kill the sword, famine, pestilence, the wild beasts. And then I think we'll stop there for today. He gets over here into the mountains falling on us. You understand that's from Old Testament scripture. Anyways, so, okay. I know that's a lot of information. Um, I hope some of it's getting in there pertaining, you know, so. Uh, but anyways, at the very least, and I encourage you guys, man, read the book of Revelation some through the week. Uh, I think that'll help you. And then, as we're going through it, uh, Maybe just read where we're at. Hopefully next week we'll be in chapter 6, 7, and we might get to touch on chapter 8. It just depends on how it goes. But just read those few chapters, 6, 7, and 8, and uh, that way your mind will be more freshly alert to where it's at. And it's amazing how this stuff, isn't it? Like how many times have you heard somebody preach on the four horsemen and actually show you from Zechariah where that's from? It's not something we have to guess about and put crazy theories about and conspiracies and governments and European unions and, you know, all these things. And uh Never. And that, exactly. And that's the reason why I preached on the seven churches first, because nobody ever preaches on the seven churches. You know, it's just we ignore that because that doesn't fit the narrative that, well, that was for them, but the rest is supposedly in our yet future. But it was a letter written to them to help them. So, you know, maybe it had something to do with them and uh, all that stuff. So, anyways, any closing thoughts, questions, comments? <laughs> Will do. Thank you. Thank you. Now yeah. Thank you for listening. <laughs> yeah, and what, what comes to me out of this is we don't have to sit here in fear. That's the thing, yeah. Yes. You know, I would, even just understanding, you know, God, I think God does do, of course, God does things prophetically, but even with nations, I think God wants any nation to be blessed, to know that Him, the living God, to follow Him. I think there are prophetic plans and destinies and things that God has for any nation. But it doesn't mean it's eschatologically. Eschatology is the doctrine of last things. It doesn't mean it's eschatologically prophetic. It's prophetic. It's just not eschatology. Because eschatology was about the last days of Old Covenant Israel. Right? Not the last days of human history. It was about a, a destruction and a change of covenant. Not a destruction and a change of the cosmos. Right? So, it does help us to understand these things. And we, it does eradicate so much fear. Right? And so we pray for our nation, and hopefully we, we do things that can be practical help to our nation, and we, you know, we instill things, godly things in our families and our children, the next generations who, who will be the, the leaders and the, you know, all these things in our nation. Uh, 
But even if the person we don't want to be in office does end up in office, that doesn't mean uh, the nation's going to hell in a handbasket. This type of stuff. We don't want this type of fear dominating us and plaguing us and corrupting us. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And, and even stuff of, you know, I don't, I think it's fine, you know, who knows, you know, walk with God and do what he tells you. You know, and if God says to do something that seems maybe different or radical or, you know, do it. I mean, that's fine. Don't misunderstand me, but don't let fear dominate your heart. Amen. All right? So, and, and of course, don't confuse it with eschatology. You know, so. Anyways, I, I, I'm finished. All right. Praise God. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Hallelujah. Lord, thank you that your truth sets us free. Free from fear of the future. Lord, we do ask you to help all of us to continue to instill godly truths into our families, into our children. Lord, may the places we touch, the places of business, family, whatever it may be that our hands touch, Lord, may it be better off with the blessings of God. Hallelujah. We bless you, sir. We thank you for your word and for your truth. In Jesus' wonderful name, we love you. Amen. Amen. All right. The Glory Center would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope that it is encouraged and ministered to you. We also would like to invite you to check out our website at glorycenter.org.